Well, Jesus loved to teach in parables and stories, sometimes in ways where the people who were following him and listening didn't always readily understand. The things he was teaching weren't always super obvious to people. And sometimes there'd be crowds of people and Jesus would say something that was sort of cryptic and sort of uh, maybe a little bit weird. And people would kind of look at each other, we read and they go, oh, what's he trying to say? And even sometimes his closest disciples, the people who knew him the best, following him around wouldn't quite get it. And there's one of those times in Luke chapter eight, um, and his disciples are kind of saying, hey, you, you taught in this big group of people, uh, all these stories, but we don't really know what's going on. Uh, and Jesus, he's going to break it down for them. But one of the things he says to them, this close, close group of people following him, is he says, to you have been given the mysteries of the kingdom. I love that so much for a number of reasons. To you have been given the mysteries of the kingdom. A mystery is a wonderful thing. A mystery is something that is not always readily understandable. There's something we don't get But a mystery is not something that's unknowable. It's something that we have opportunity to know more and more about if you're willing to follow the clues. That there is something to learn. It's just that we have to dig a little deeper. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus taught in parables or stories so often is because he was inviting for those who really want to understand something that's below the surface, that's deeper, that's more meaningful, you're going to have to lean in. You're going to have to ask some questions. You're going to have to dialogue and discuss and meditate, chew on it, digest it. Ask what really the message is and how it affects your life. And Jesus loved to invite people into that kind of learning. And so he says the mysteries are these things that there's always an opportunity to know more about of the kingdom have been made known to you. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's talking about what life would look like if we lived as if God was totally in charge, a God who is love. A God who wants what's best for us, who wants peace, shalom, wholeness, goodness for our lives and for the world. If that kind of God is in charge and we actually lived like it, we'd be living in the kingdom of God. We'd be living our best possible life, the world's best possible life. Another way that people talked about that, and we'll see in a story that we're going to talk about today, is people talk about eternal life. And we have often thought that eternal life is mostly about going to heaven when you die. It's about the period of time that we have to live life, that God's going to give us life forever. That's good. That's wonderful. But in Jesus' context, really, it meant even more than quantity of life, quality of life. If you really want to live the good life, Jesus invites people to come and to dive into the mysteries of the kingdom or to explore what it looks like to live eternal life, to live the good life. Does that not sound good? So how can we live the good life? Comes down to decisions in some ways. How do we make decisions in life? There are so many decisions that we make on a daily basis. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. And today I want to talk a little bit, actually in this whole series, as we talk about these mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus was making available, to talk about what some of those secrets of living the good life is, secrets to following Jesus. And uh, that's going to affect all the decisions that we make in our lives. So think a little bit about uh, the way to live the good life and and what kind of decisions we might have to make, how to make key decisions about our lives. How do we decide what to say no to or what to say yes to in our schedules? How do we spend our time? How do we decide what to do with our money? How do we decide what things we get our kids involved with, what values we teach them, what their schedule looks like? How do we decide how we're going to spend our weekends? How do we decide which morals we're going to teach if that's our family or whoever's close to us and enforce in in our lives, in our our community? How do we decide who we're going to date or who we're going to marry? How do we decide our career path or big decisions along the way or what retirement will look like? 
How do we decide what kind of church we become? It's a big question I want us to ask throughout this series. I want to talk a little bit because we could apply all these to our personal lives. And yet, I think we live in a a culture and a society that uh, maybe overemphasizes our individual lives, even over the community one. And so as we move through this series and we talk about how we make our decisions, what we, we, we really think is important and how we live based on that, I want us to talk about, sure, of course, let's think about it, how it looks for me as an individual, you as an individual, our families, uh, but also collectively as we come together. What kind of church do we want to have? Do we want to be? And we will need to ask ourselves, how do we make that decision? How do we decide? And throughout this series, here's my suggestion of how we'll figure out how we decide the answer to all of these questions and many, many more. We decide on our values and then we let our values decide. In other words, let's start with this. Let's start with asking ourselves, what do we really value? What are the kind of people we want to be? What are the things that are most important to us? And then when we establish that and when we can get a bit of a vision and a picture for the kind of people we want to be, the kind of families we want to have, the kind of marriages we want to have, the kind of church that we want to be, then let's take those values and let them to make the decisions for us. Then if we want to be those kind of people, we make decisions to how do those kind of people live? How do we get there? And so what we're talking about in this series is we look at some of those uh, secrets or mysteries of the kingdom. What we're really saying is what are the core foundational values that we want to build our life upon, both as individuals, families, and together as a church. So I'm excited for us to do that uh, and to look at uh, five of those secrets. And there's more than five, but uh, what I've done is is look through as a church, uh, five of the most important things, values that we take out from the life and the teachings of Jesus. And then to ask ourselves, how do we implement those? How do we make decisions such that we are becoming the kind of people um, that are living by the values that we say that we are? So welcome along, and especially if you're new here, if this is your first time or one of your first time, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, If you're a student, we want to welcome you back. We know uh, many of you students, either at Mac or Mohawk or Redeemer, you're back in the area, uh, perhaps in the last week or a couple of weeks. Uh, And uh, I know even as I talk about decision-making, many of you are in a phase of life where there's a ton of decisions to make, and they're not easy decisions. What are you going to study? What career path are you going to look at? Where are you going to live after school? And sometimes that can uh, be a real weight on your shoulders. There are sometimes uh, many voices that are telling you what decisions you should make. This is exactly the kind of career that you need to have for us to approve of you or or for you to feel good about yourself. This is how much money you need to make. Uh, You know, this is the kind of place that you need to live in one day. Uh, There's so many of those things. And I hope, this isn't just for students, but for all of us, that as we come here together, where we'll be able to ground those things is uh, we want to point each other to what it would look like to base all those decisions on following Jesus. That is our ultimate value. And as we look at the other ones, we will come back over and over um, to that foundation of looking what it looks like to follow Jesus together. So let's look into our first secret or mystery today of following Jesus, mysteries of the kingdom. Found in Luke chapter 10, if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible or on your app on your phone, love for you to read along. Uh, this is a, a really popular, at least uh, at least in the name of it, parable that Jesus tells. A lot of people refer to it as the Good Samaritan. Uh, even in popular culture, people have picked up on it. Most people know what you're talking about, at least uh, broadly speaking. If you say someone's a Good Samaritan, someone that's going to stop and help and care for someone else. But I want to dive deeper into that and look at what Jesus teaches us through this powerful, powerful story. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, how can I live the best possible life? How can I live out eternal life? Show me the secrets of your kingdom. Teach me something that I need to know. I love the question because he says, uh, how can I inherit eternal life? My initial answer, if anybody asks, how do I inherit something? I would probably say, I think the way that you inherit is by being the child of someone who owns something. Isn't it? That one day it will be given to you. And perhaps that's very intentional to say as we look through this story that the most important thing about how we might inherit the, uh, the kingdom of God or eternal life is that we would recognize and live out the reality that we are God's children. And hopefully there'll be some family resemblance. And that over time we will inherit his eternal life, the life that he has for us. But Jesus goes deeper. He says to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This kind of dialogue is actually really popular in Jesus' context. Jesus is acting as, a, as kind of a rabbi, a teacher in first century Judaism. And there would have been a number of rabbis, teacher, people would have followed them around and they would ask them these kind of questions. How do we know what eternal life is? And they would have dialogue and debate. And Jesus kind of throws it back and says, uh, well, what's written in the law? He goes back to the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the first five books of the Bible were called the law or the Torah. And Jesus goes, well, go back to there and find out what's, what does God tell you to do? And this guy comes back and he quotes the Bible and Jesus goes, yeah, you nailed it. Basically love God with everything that you are, your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That would have been a pretty common answer. Jesus goes, that's a good answer. Go do that. You'll live. You'll have eternal life. Perfect. Interesting question. The lawyer comes back. He says, desiring, it says, desiring to justify himself. So he wants to make sure I'm in the right. I've got this all together. I'm the person we're talking about who's inheriting the eternal life. He says, well, then tell me who my neighbor is so I can love God. And then I'll just love whoever it is that you tell me to love. And then we'll be good. I'll be good. I'm going to talk about this more, but it's interesting that he is looking for a minimum standard that he needs to achieve to have eternal life. Love your neighbor. Correct. Okay, well then who's my neighbor? Because as long as I can get over that bar, I will have eternal life. It's a minimum. Jesus is going to tell a story that challenges that way of thinking. Here it goes. Verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Here's a context. Jesus is making up this story. It's a parable. It's for people to um, sort of figure out and dive deeper into the mystery of what the message is. But the context is important and people would have understood a whole bunch of this context. So the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. It was on the one hand, one that was kind of downhill and you could see pretty far in front of you. So you knew a little bit what to expect. But there were also twists and turns where robbers knew that they could sort of hide out and that people between those two places would be pretty vulnerable. And so it was not uncommon. It was well known. If you're traveling that road, you need to be careful because it could be that you get jumped, that you get hijacked, that somebody uh, robs you, beats you, steals your stuff and gets away. That would have been known to the people. 
And that's what happens in the story. Someone comes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Robbers come after him. They strip him and beat him, leaving him half dead. Half dead is an idiom. It's a way of basically saying right next to death, almost dead. In fact, to the point where if you encountered someone who is in that state, you might think that they are dead or not know if they are dead or not that close. This person is right next to or possibly even dead. They're at the point of death. A couple of important details here. The robbers strip him and beat him, and he is almost dead, which is most certainly unconscious. Why is that important? Because it means that the man who has been beaten is basically unidentifiable in terms of religious or ethnic properties. What would have given that away is what he would have been wearing. Oh, is he Jewish or is he not Jewish? Does he worship what we worship? Does he not worship? Without his clothing... No one would know. Without him being able to speak, nobody would know. This person, Kenneth Bailey, who's one of the great scholars on parables, says, the fact that he has been stripped is key because it makes him unidentifiable, ethnically or religiously. He can't talk and his dress doesn't give him away. The man, therefore, has been reduced to a mere human being in need. We don't know who he is and anybody who comes upon him will not be able to categorize him other than this is a human being who may or may not be dead, somebody who is in great need. Verse 31 says, Now by chance... A priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That's interesting. What is with the priest? So the priest is coming down from Jerusalem. He's probably on some sort of a break from his duties at the temple. That's what he does. He goes to the temple and he offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. It's how he provides for his family. It's how he provides an important religious duty for his community. He's an important person. He's probably riding on an animal because he's an upper class person. And it says he comes by and he sees him and he just passes by on the other side. He doesn't go close. Why would he not do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, a priest would know very well that contacting a human body would make them ritually impure. Now, a priest who's ritually impure cannot cannot preside over their duties. They cannot do what they're supposed to do in the temple. They are religiously impure, which means before they could go back and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, before they could do what they do to make sure that their family is provided before, before that they could do what they do to worship God on behalf of all the people that they're supposed to be leading from a religious perspective, they would have to become pure again. And you can read in the scripture what that would require. Some people think it would require a decent amount of shame, that there would be like a public shaming. How could you let this happen to yourself? Although people become ritually impure all the time, priests need to be very careful of this. But in order to become clean again, it would require a, a big process, which took an entire week and an entire cow. You can read about it in, in Numbers chapter 19. You got to get this cow and you got to make these sacrifices and you got to go through this on this day and this on this day, and it takes a whole week. And so it's like the priest coming by and going, that person, I don't know who they are, but they could be dead. If I go close, I can't perform my job. I can't perform my duty. I can't do what I'm supposed to religiously on behalf of the people. I have to keep my distance. That needs to be my priority. The priest believed that his religious duties outweigh his duty to show compassion to the man. I need to make sure I'm being a priest. It's who I am. And so I got to be careful. What can I do? Verse 32, next. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the priest 
it says, was going down the road and saw him and passed by. The Levite, and this is maybe a small detail, but kind of important, when he came to the place, so he goes a little bit closer. The priest just, oh, he sees him and he keeps going. The Levite comes to the place and sees him, but he keeps passing by. Why? A Levite uh, didn't have the same requirements as a priest. They didn't uh, have all the same jobs. They didn't do all the same things. And there weren't quite the same restrictions on a Levite, although they also worked in the temple to help with some of the, the, the religious rites that happened there and ceremonies. They weren't completely as bound as much as a priest was. But if you're the Levite, a couple of things we probably assume is, one, a Levite coming down the road in this story, remember uh, the road to Jerusalem and Jericho kind of goes down. We can assume that the Levite knew the priest was ahead of him. So one, he's probably thinking, the priest didn't stop. Well, if the priest didn't stop, why should I stop? I don't want to challenge his authority. That's basically my boss. And if he thinks that the right thing to do is to pass by and make sure that we are not ceremonially unclean or impure, I probably shouldn't challenge his authority. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to make it look like I know something better than he does. And as much as he wouldn't be entirely wrapped up with as much restrictions as the the priest would have been, he still would have had to go through the ritual purity stuff. There still would have been a bunch of things. And he's probably thinking what anybody would have thought is that I'm also concerned for my own safety. That we all know this is a dangerous road. And if we didn't know it already, here's somebody who's been robbed and beaten and is almost dead. Maybe they are dead. And if I stick around here long enough, then what's going to happen to me? So the priest who uh, believed that his religious duties outweighed his duty to show compassion. We have the Levite who probably believed that his own well-being outweighed the well-being of someone else. That I got to make sure I don't get in trouble with my boss, with the temple, with what I'm supposed to be doing. That I don't get beaten myself. I got to make sure that I'm okay. And who knows, maybe he's dead anyways. The values of the priest and of the Levite is what dictate, their value systems dictate their decisions. The religious duties that they feel are superior and the Levite, his well-being over another person. And then we come to verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. Just think about that. Remember the priest, the priest saw the man and passed by. The Levite saw the man and went to the place But now it really slows down for the Samaritan. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him. By the way, this story is a bit of a formula. There's certain jokes that we have that if you kind of tell the joke along the way, there's certain expectations uh, because we've told that formula, that style of joke over and over that people would get. So uh, one example is you might've heard a joke. There's a priest, a rabbi, and a minister, right? You kind of would know um, there's some form of that. If I told you uh, a priest a rabbi and a minister walk into the bar and you go, oh, I've heard something like this. And there's lots of variations on what the joke is, but it's sort of formulaic. This story, Jesus is doing the same thing. There's a priest, there's a Levite, and then there would have been an expectation of his original audience that the third person was a Jewish layperson. And that the Jewish layperson sort of shows the uh, priest and the Levite what's really true. So they should know better. They should know better. But here's the average person that just actually does know better. Jesus here, when he calls out that this is a Samaritan in that third spot, he shocks his audience. This time and place, Jews and Samaritans are not friends. They are enemies. It was not that far in the, in the distant few past. It was just a few years earlier where the Samaritans actually desecrated the temple of the Jewish people by putting human bones of all things in it. 
Samaritans, in the Jews' perspective, probably not all of them, but, but predominantly at this time, was it the Samaritans, they came from similar roots for the Jewish people, but they, uh, along the way, got fighting. And no, we're not the same. They argued about where you're supposed to worship and how you're supposed to worship, what mountain, what temple, uh, all of these kind of things, to the point where they hated each other. They were enemies. So this is, the Samaritan is someone who worships wrong, uh, who lives wrong. They're the wrong ethnicity. They're the wrong religion. Everything about them is wrong. So even right from the get-go, you got to understand, you have a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Samaritan. Everything about this guy has got to be wrong. But when he comes, he sees the man, he has compassion Compassion, this word means, uh, it comes from the word for guts, like deep in his guts and his insides, he feels for this person. He feels for this uh, beaten person. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. In the shock of it, this uh, Samaritan, the one who's supposed to get everything wrong is the one who have compassion, not the priest, not the Levite, but the Samaritan. So he cleans the wounds with oil, disinfects with wine, and finally he binds them up. The text though is in a different order starts with the binding of wounds, which is emphasized. It's actually imagery that if you know your Old Testament or Hebrew Bible really well, you would have picked up on that this is language that is used of God and how he acts towards his people. Places like Jeremiah 30 or Hosea 6, uh, where it's God who, who takes those who are hurting, those who are in pain, those who are in need, and he binds up their wounds. That's the language that is used. Oil and wine were not only standard first aid remedies, so they were, they were ways that you would use um, medicinally, but they were also sacrificial elements in the temple worship, pouring out. If you poured out these things, was a language of worship where libations were poured in connection with sacrifices. And what does all that mean? It means the Samaritan's total response to the man's needs, including this simple libation, is a profound expression of the steadfast love for which the prophets were always calling. It's the Samaritan who pours out the true offering acceptable to God. There is not just this idea that a good Samaritan is someone who's nice and loving and, oh, there's someone in need, I'll do something. It is the contrast between the worship value system of the priest and Levite, which said, we have to do all these temple things and get them right. But it precludes us from caring, having compassion and showing mercy to someone who is in need. Here comes now the Samaritan who they would have thought they worship completely wrong. They're the opposite end of the spectrum of the priest and Levite. They don't go through any of the right rituals, any of the right ceremonies. They're they're always impure and they make other people impure. But here he comes and he acts like God, binding up the wounds and pouring out the oil and the wine and caring for this person at great sacrifice. It's the Samaritan's values that gave value to the man in need. We have the contrast of what is most valuable in your religious system. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one, this is the lawyer, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do you remember that uh, the man was asking, well, who is my neighbor? What's the lowest bar I have to get over? Just tell me the people that I have to love. He probably expected Jesus to say your family, your extended family, uh, your fellow Jews, the people who are, are like you, the people who are around you. Those would have been common answers. That's the minimum bar. And if you love those people, you'll have eternal life. 
But Jesus changes the question. Look at by the end of it, Jesus doesn't talk about who your neighbor is. He says, who was a neighbor to that man? Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus challenged us to ask, who can I be a neighbor to? Not who's the minimum. Just tell me the kind of people that I have to be loving towards. But what kind of person do I need to be? What kind of neighbor am I when I see people of all different ways of life, people who are completely different from me, people who I couldn't even identify because they're naked and unconscious and near death. The first question, who is my neighbor, asks, what are the minimum requirements? The second asks, how can I love well? Here's the hinge of this story. Many people who, would have, who were listening to this story would have considered what the priest and Levite did to be the right thing to do. Really? They were trying to worship God. They were trying to help other people worship God. They were doing the right thing. And Jesus goes, let me tell you this story. And do you know who ends up doing the right thing? The last person you would expect religiously or ethnically to be the hero of the story. Why would people think that's the right thing to do? Listen to this. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 9. It's in the Bible. The priests must follow my instructions carefully. Otherwise, they will be punished for their sin and will die for violating my instruction. I am the Lord who makes them holy. That's why. Because God told them what their instructions were and how to become, how to make sure they don't become impure and what it takes to become pure again. And the priest would have said, that's my duty. That is my law. Jesus here is challenging their deeply held values and how they interpret scripture. Jesus is actually acting like a prophet. Do you know what happens in the prophets? So we have the law. I told you it's in the first chunk of the Bible, first five books of the Bible. And there's all kinds of stories and how Israel became a nation, but also a whole bunch of actual laws. Here's how you should live it out. And then over the centuries, what happens is prophets show up and they say, I know what you've read in the law, but you're interpreting it terribly. And you're living horrible lives and you're not loving people and you're not good people. They were harsh. And they were calling people back to what it looked like to be faithful to God. And oftentimes they would say things that would say, I know you think you're following the letter of the law, but you're missing the intent of the law. You're missing the love in the law. You're missing the whole purpose as you do that. So famously, Hosea says on behalf of God or God through Isaiah says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. That's Hosea uh, chapter six, verse six. And Hosea is saying, I get it. You can be so committed to the letter of the law. And Jesus will say in other places in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not that I'm saying you shouldn't follow the law and that's not important and that it's not the Bible. I'm saying that I'm here to fulfill the law. We're here to make sure that that we come to the, the depths of what God wants in the law, the law of love. Remember that started this whole conversation about loving your neighbor, loving God with all that you are and loving your neighbor. That's the whole discussion. Well, how do we do that? Well, you can't ignore your neighbor. Well, yeah, but in the law, I have all these things that tell me I'm not supposed to come close to someone in this circumstance, but you're not loving your neighbor. And if you want the entire law to make sense, to come together, it hangs off of those two things, to love God with everything you are and to love your neighbor. You can't miss it. So Jesus here is talking as that prophetic voice in that same way, saying that the religious duty is to show compassion. Love requires a minimum. Sorry, law requires a minimum. Love requires mercy. Jesus could have said, the law says, here are the the people you're supposed to show mercy to. But the real point of the law, of God's law, is love. And that requires mercy. That requires a whole different way of thinking about things. So yesterday, uh, I was on the rail trail running, jogging. 
and uh, I've been jogging a little bit the last little while, and uh, I'm not a fast runner, and I'm just trying to kind of stay healthy and all that kind of stuff. But I have an app that tells me how fast I'm going, how far I've gone, what my pace is. You have those. And uh, I get a little competitive with myself. I'm trying not to be competitive because I just want to go for, you know, a run in the forest and enjoy it. But I can't help but kind of look at my app every once in a while and say, how am I comparing to my last run? Am I on pace? Am I ahead of pace? What's going on? And this week, I had a really good run. And uh, I was feeling good about that. And then on, on yesterday, I'm running again, and I'm at the last part, like the last 10% of my run. And I happen to look down on my app, and I go, oh, I'm right on pace. In fact, if I have a good last 10% here, I might beat yesterday's run. This is really good. And I'm, I'm going along, feeling good about it. And all of a sudden, three people, three adults come by me on bikes. I'm not for sure who's who, but it kind of looked like a mom and dad and their adult son who is maybe 20. They come past me. The woman is in front by a little bit, and the two men are just behind her. All of a sudden, they get just a little bit in front of me. I don't know what happens. I don't know if she accidentally tapped her front brakes or if her wheel hit a rut or something, but her bike grounds to a a halt, and she flies over the handlebars. And the bike starts and lands on top of her. And I think dad, maybe, I don't know, but it looked like he tries to stop because he's right behind her and he can't quite stop. And he, he piles into her too. And then I know, so he's standing there and the son maybe could be someone else, but uh, looked like a son. They're standing there now, I think in shock because, whoa, this is crazy. So I think, first thing I think is if I stop and help, this is going to kill my time. Like I am right on pace, right on pace. Then I think, no, wait, I can be the good Samaritan. I'm the hero. So I stop and I literally pull the bike off of this lady. And uh, these guys are sitting there. Again, they're kind of stunned. I don't think they know what to do. And then all of a sudden, they go, oh yeah, are you okay? So then we're picking her up. And miraculously, I think based on what I saw, she's okay. Like she's hurt obviously, but she's nothing too serious. And so we pick her up. Are you okay? Yes, no, I'm okay. I think I can keep going. And they go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, uh, and we move on. Now, I joke about the two things that I thought, but here's what I actually thought. I actually thought, I've been on this trail hundreds of times. I have never seen anything like this. Never seen anything like this. To which I might think, some of us would read this story that Jesus was telling and say, I will never see anything like this. And then I thought this. I wonder if we in our everyday life went out into the world and we're asking the question, who can I be a neighbor to if we would see these kind of things more and more every day? I don't mean someone flying over their handlebars, but if all of a sudden we would see our neighbors differently, that maybe if we didn't see people and their needs as an obstacle or a distraction or something that took us away from what was really important, all of a sudden we would see needs everywhere. We would see people that we could be a neighbor to every single day at work, literally our neighbors on the street that we live in, in our building, down the hall, in the dorms, that all of a sudden there be these opportunities and we might ask ourselves, what does it look like to have compassion and to show mercy? And I think we have all been placed exactly where we are, exactly where we are in life, to have our eyes open to who we might show mercy to. Here's value number one for, uh, for what I hope will be how we make decisions based on as a church and for you as an individual too. But number one, we're locally focused. There's a ton of values we could draw out from this parable and we're gonna do, a, there's a bunch of overlap in the next few weeks. But what if we were just saying, maybe, just literally speaking in, we have neighbors. Who are we a neighbor to? That these people aren't a distraction. 
It's, it's not a, oh, there's an interruption from the important things in my life. But maybe that's why we are where we are. What if we said it's impossible for us to drive through this neighborhood that those of us sitting in the room are in, past a university, through the West End of Hamilton, sing a bunch of songs, open up the scriptures, worship, and go home and not see our neighbors? Or what if we asked, this is, I think, a powerful but challenging question. If Westside Church closed its doors and ceased to exist, who would care? Who would care? Would our neighbors, would the West End of Hamilton, would people in Dundas or Ancaster or downtown, would anybody care? Would anybody notice? Or would it just be us who come and worship on a Sunday and say, well, this was great. They sang my favorite song. They stayed awake during the sermon. Perfect. Or would people who come and say, hey, there's 30,000 students who come from all over the world. Most of them live within walking distance of our church building. How can we be a neighbor to them? What are their needs? We are situated, I think, very strategically just outside of Dundas, just down from Ancaster and the Hamilton Mountain, and just up from downtown. Who are our neighbors? And what would it look like for us to serve them and to show mercy for them? What if we believe that God had us right here in this location to serve our neighbors? Hey, Burlington friends, We've got a lot of our Burlington friends either watching online here in the room. We're hoping to launch soon in Burlington. And I know these concepts for many of you, they are not new. You've been thinking about them. You've been living out them. But as we think about launching Westside Burlington this fall, what if we started right from the get-go as part of our DNA asking the question, how do we be a neighbor to Burlington? And who in Burlington would care if there was a Westside church? Would it just be the people who show up on Sunday morning to our worship gatherings? Or would our neighbors actually care? What if we were really focused on uh, our local areas and the needs that are in there? What if we decided that was our value? And as we decided our values, we let our values decide who we are and therefore what we do and where we spend our energy and our money and our time and what we do when we come together. And I would love for you to think about that and to talk about that with people that you're sitting next to, with people maybe that are here watching online that you're going to talk to this week uh, or as we... uh, together as a community and as a church come together throughout this fall and work on things. Now, as we close today, let me tell you why at the core of all the values, our great value is to put Jesus at the center of our lives and our church and for us to follow Jesus. It's because Jesus ultimately is the Samaritan and I'm the wounded man. You're the wounded man. Because this is a parable that points to something much bigger. It's the story of Jesus himself. He is the rejected one, the one who doesn't fit in, the one who many said, your religion doesn't look right, the one who would cross the barriers of social expectation and religious expectation. He's the one who saw the world in need, people wounded by sin, who stopped, who came close, and at a great cost to himself, tended to our wounds, risked his life, in fact, gave his life to bring the world back to health. It's the story of the cross and it's the story of resurrection. It's a story that all of us are invited into and to live into and to make our ultimate core value and to watch Jesus. And if that becomes uh, our value, what we really value, we decide it's our value, then we make that value our decisions. And that's what I want. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for my marriage. It's what I want for my kids. It's what I want for you and I as a community. It's what I want for our neighborhood. It's what I want for the world. 
And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that he shows us, not just in his teaching, in his teaching, but by his life and his death and his resurrection, what it looks like to show compassion and mercy, to care for the people that were all around him, because we are not his distraction or interruption, but rather... We are the ones that he loves, his beloved. Oh God, I pray that we would be your children, people that would take up um, the family resemblance of that kind of love, that we might inherit your eternal life in Jesus' name.